everybody. Welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's Minor League Podcast. I'm Steve Saipa, and this week I'm joined by the Dream Team once more, Lucas and Kenny. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Glad yeah. to be back. Yeah. All right. So let's jump right into uh, Promote, Extend, Trade. And I was looking at Wikipedia about some possible topics for this week, and there's a lot of coincidences so today we're recording, it's the 21st of July, and on July 24th, uh, 1904, Louis Ringali became the first man to break 100 miles per hour on land. And then 20 years later, almost, in 1925, Malcolm Campbell became the first man to exceed going 150 miles per hour on land. On this date in 1961, Gus Grissom became the second American to go into space. And the Mercury Redstone rocket that got him there traveled about 4,500 miles an hour. And on this date in 2011, NASA ended the space shuttle program when Shuttle Atlantis landed at the Kennedy Space Center. And the reentry, the reentry speed for the shuttle is roughly Mach 25 or 17,500 miles per hour. So that's a lot of speed. And speed can be used in a variety of ways in baseball depending on – you know, what the player is doing with it. So for promote, extend, trade, if you had three prospects equally valuable, would you have, would you rather have one have plus defensive foot speed, plus fastball velocity, or plus bat speed? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, all bats. things being equally, you know, the hitters are equally good hitters, and and the pitcher is a good pitcher. So, so the guy with bat speed isn't a better hitter than the other guys. No, well, that's that's a it's an I odd get way of putting all, it. All of the tools are right. Everything else the same uh, right. value, and everything else is not far enough to move. I guess. All right, so the guy the guy with foot speed is probably an elite defender or something, and the guy with better bat speed probably has better power. Yeah, but the the overall profile is more or less the same. Um, across the teams. Bat. All right, so I'll extend bat speed guy because offense is a easy to quantify and b usually ages well. Um, I'll promote fastball speed guy because worst case is probably like a some sort of middle reliever, if not something more. And then I guess I'm training foot speed guy, which is a shame because defense is like super aesthetically pleasing, but ultimately the worst skill to invest in probably. So I'm trading that guy. Um, for argument's sake, I will extend that speed so there's an agreement there. Um, and I will flip the other two. Mostly just because if a guy really has elite, elite fastball, there's just some like injury risk built in. Mm. Um, but I don't feel super strongly about it. <laughs> it also might be like a Gerson Batista fastball, which is a hundred and yeah. But there's other straight. things that yeah, other things that could make the velocity play down, or you could like shot put it, and you know then it appears faster than it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. All right. Well, sounds good. That was it. Was a tough one. At the same time, like Billy, elite foot speed means like yeah, only gets Billy Hamilton. I guess. I mean, if an elite fastball is you know ninety, you know, touching triple digits, 
and plus bat speed is an excellent hitter, then I guess plus speed would be, you know, a Billy to Billy Hamilton type excellent. Or or you could have a, a Juan Lagares type, I guess, too, where it, it translates into defense but not so much, you know, base dealing mm-hmm. speed. Pre three trillion injuries, Juan Lagares. Yes, yeah, the good Juan Lagares. <clears throat> All right, well, um the Syracuse Mets were good this week. They went six and one which leaves them at 50 and 49 for the year, but they are seven games behind the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Well Riders for first place in the International League North. Binghamton Brumble Ponies, they went three and three, and they had a rain postponement, and that puts them at 14 and 17 in the, sef- in the second half, which is six and a half games behind the Red and Fightin' Phils for first place in the Eastern League Eastern Division. St. Lucie Mets went two and four this week, and they are now 20 and 12 in the second half but they're four games behind the Charlotte Stone Crabs for first place in the Florida State League South. The Columbia Fireflies, they went 3-5 and five this week, and they are now 14-16 and 16 in the second half, which is three games behind the Augusta Green Jackets, for first in the South Atlantic League Southern Division. The Cyclones went a perfect 5-0 and this week, and they are now 20-14 and 14 on the season, and they're in first place in the New York Penn League McNamara Division, and they have a single-game lead over the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Kingsport Mets, they went 2-5, and five, and they are 14-17 and 17 on the year, which is four games behind the Elizabethan Twins in the Appalachian League West. And finally, the GCL Mets, who are 12-8 and eight for the year. That brings us to our hitter of the week, and that individual is Travis Tyrone, who in his seven games this week, Hit 360, 500, 960 <laughs> with one Jesus double, Christ. one triple, four home runs, and then a stolen base to boot. Mm, yes, that, that delicious triple A ball. <laughs> well, he has 21 homers right now, and that's tied with Dilson Herrera for fifth in the International League. Um, only Brian O'Grady has more. He has 26. Bobby Bradley, he has 25. Aristides Aquino has 23, and Brandon Barnes has 22. So, um, no doubt Tyrone has power. And in the PCL, he was able to kind of maintain a high-ish batting average. But in the International League now, which is slightly less offensive-oriented currently, um, his batting average is south of a little bit south of 250, even though he is drawing enough walks to augment it. But... His ability to hit for power, I mean, his ability to hit for, like, a high batting average against kind of more advanced pitching is the biggest thing that's really holding him back. Um, raw power doesn't really matter if you're struggling to make contact. And also, just the fact that the way the Mets' 25-man roster is built right now, it'd be hard to find playing time playing time for Tyrone if he were promoted to the majors. Um, he's a you know, first baseman slash outfielder. And the Mets have a couple of those, most notably Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. And both of them are kind of getting limited playing time because they're, you know, bench backup part-time guys. So if Tyrone were promoted to the majors, he would be competing with at-bats with those guys. And I don't think that uh, Mickey Calloway is going to be penciling in Tyrone over Smith or Davis, both of whom are doing decently this year. Yeah. How how meaningfully different is 
I mean, obviously Davis can quote play third base. How meaningfully different is his skill set from Tyrone's? I really wonder. Like, doesn't strike really. me as doesn't strike me that there's a huge delta between the two. No, I don't think so. I mean, really, what is what Davis has? You know, in his limited at bats this year, he has the track record, quote unquote, because I mean, it's really what like 80 games or whatever. But he has the track record of success. Whereas Tyrone just doesn't. He had mm. 20-ish major league games or so, and he did not particularly do well in them. So, yeah, when, we were talk- be- when we were yeah. talking last week about how many games do these guys need to get uh, the MLB pension or whatever, like 40-something? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a small amount. I mean, I'm rooting for you know a Tyrone to at least make the September roster. Roster, yeah, exactly. He deserves to at least be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in theory, I guess he could overtake either one of those guys as kind of the go-to pinch hit or, you know, um, Sunday lineup bat, but probably not happening. But, I mean, he's put in his dues. He's like 30 years old now. He Ready? deserves, you know, whatever he gets, I think he's he's deserved. at this a, good, a good organization to make sure he gets his pension. Mm-hmm. It's questionable whether or not the Mets uh, fit that mold. <laughs> He's almost got a decade in pro ball. Yeah. yeah. Like eight years. He's been around for a very, very long time. God. How many years was he in Vegas? Four. Uh, three full seasons before this one. Jeez. Mm. Except for uh, of the end of 17 where he was in uh, Oklahoma City. Weeks. Uh, big leagues with the Mets. In oh. 2018, he went back to the PCL with the Dodgers. The, so. Thematically appropriate since it's um, I'm think trying to come up with a podcast appropriate metaphor. Extremely hot outside right now. I can't imagine <laughs> playing baseball in weather hotter than this for a whole summer. No, I mean when when we had the team in Las Vegas and we were doing those 10 o'clock starts here, which would be then I guess 7 o'clock there. He still had starting game temperatures of like 107, 108, 109, 110. Wild. Oh. Yeah. Not uh, optimal for baseball performance. Not optimal for sitting on a bus either. Like driving in the heat sucks too. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> Get him his pension, Mets, please. Yes. He deserves it. All right, our pitch of the week now is a guy that is uh, one of my go-to guys, Dyson Acosta. He pitched in two games this week, and he threw a total of 10 and innings and got one out. And uh, he scattered four hits, allowed one run. He walked six, which is a little bad, but he did strike out 14. So a little background about him. He was uh, signed as a minor league free agent at the Dominican Republic in 2016. He only got $70,000, so he wasn't a big uh, bonus guy. He pitched in the DSL that year. He was assigned to the GCL Mets in 2017, the next year. And last year, he was with Kingsport. Um, last year, he posted a 446 ERA in 42.1 innings, allowing 38 hits, walking 18, and striking out 46. He started this year with the Cyclones, but he was promoted to Columbia 
uh, after just a handful of starts. Uh, Costa is six foot two, 160 pounds. So there's more than a little room for, uh, development in his body. He's pretty lanky. He's pretty tall. He's never going to be like a physical specimen or anything like that, but there's definitely room for him to fill in a bit. And his fastball is, uh, it sits in the low to mid nineties. It tops out at about 95 or so. Though when I saw him last season in Kingsport, it was towards the end of the season and his fastball was more 89 to 92. And that's where the importance of him filling in comes a little bit. Um, more important than him adding velocity because, uh, you know, low to mid nineties fastball, that, that's fine. But more important than adding velocity is being able to maintain it. Um, throughout both an individual game and just throughout the course of an entire season. And then complementing his fastball are two secondaries, a curveball and a changeup. Curveball, definitely the more advanced of the two. Um, it occasionally flashed being an above-average pitch. Sits about 77 to 82 or so. It can get kind of loose and slurvy, but when he's able to snap it off with like a more defined 12-6 shape, it's like a real knee buckler. And then the changeup, um, that's a pitch. It's in the mid-80s. It has a little bit of fade, um, especially when he's throwing it down, but it needs a little bit more refinement, a little bit more fade, and maybe a little bit more velocity differential from his fastball. Um, you know, you're only getting about five miles per hour or so with his uh, fastball and change. So a little bit more differential would make it more effective. So he's still... Uh, young developmentally, he's a little older on the prospect side. He's 20 now. He's turning 21, but that's a, a good age for him to be in, in Columbia. He'll get a full season under his belt this year there. And, you know, I think he's going to be a, a, a guy to watch going forward. I mean, you're the, you're his biggest fan, I think, among, uh, Anyone I've heard from? Yeah, probably. What do you What do you think is like realistic future? Is just a fringy relief guy, back end start? Like what What should we be hoping for? Uh, I mean, most likely fringy relief guy that never really makes it. <laughs> but I guess <sighs> it depends on how he's able. You know, if if he's able to kind of tighten up his curveball a little bit and kind of fine-tune his change-up a little bit. That's a solid fastball paired with a pretty good change-up uh, change and a pretty good curveball. That's a pretty good uh, starting point for a pitcher who's working his way up. All in all, though, you know, it's the Mets, so we should always damper our expectations about everything. <laughs> So we're really jumping right into the depressing stuff in this segment, aren't we? The Mets, yeah, uh, well, yeah. It's, we can't help it. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, having seen, having gone down to Columbia and seen a lot of the top prospects in the system kind of underwhelm and underperform, I'm kind of a little less optimistic on all Mets prospects right now. So, General Malays. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. There's a general, I have a general malaise. But I know, I think that it's better to be, um, too down on these guys than too optimistic. A lot of other 
websites, either national ones or Met-centric ones, are kind of too optimistic on prospects. You know, everybody is going to be a world beater. And I don't think that's, as a, as a general philosophy, I don't think that's a good uh, one to have. I think it's better to be more pessimistic about everybody. <laughs> well, that's just me. I I think you're right, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Are you the optimist here, Kenny? Are you the most optimistic? Oh, no. no. I, was, I was just going to join and say, um, if you don't have any expectations, you'll ever be let down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I assume bad things are going to happen most of the time. <laughs> you expect no. the worst, you can never be disappointed. Yeah, that's true. Unless you're like that character from Malcolm and the Mitchell, whose name Dewey, right? I expect nothing, and I'm oh. still disappointed. <laughs> that's a good way of of that's that's the 2019 Mets tagline. We expect nothing, and we're still disappointed. <laughs> All right, well, we will be back after this. Welcome back to From Complex to Queens. I am Steve Saipa, and I'm joined by Lucas and Kenny. And it's like 100 degrees outside, so there's only one thing to talk about, which is the heater, the fastball. It's that was... <laughs> I thought of that. It took me a long time to think of that one. <laughs> I, I, obligatory size. <laughs> Fastball is the most basic pitch that a pitcher can throw. It's the most common pitch that he throws, and it's the most talked about pitch that a pitcher throws. You know, when a guy throws, a Roldis Chapman throws 106 miles per hour, everybody starts talking. If Clayton Kershaw fires off a godly curveball, you know, it's aesthetically pleasing, but it's just like, uh, eh, whatever. So let's, I don't know, this is a kind of heavy subject here, but let's talk about physics. Um, the physics of baseball, which is actually a really fascinating subject. I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at physics, but the concepts are really interesting. So, I mean, anyone out there who's listening who is like me, handicapped when it comes to this, at least you can kind of get and comprehend the, the concepts. This is why it. it's good that you're putting together this segment and not me, because I'd just talk about math for the next half hour. Right. Yeah, I mean you're probably the most qualified to talk about this, but I can count to fifteen, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. How did you make our top twenty five list then? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Everything after fifteen really could just be interchangeable. That is true. That is very Probably true. Probably not even making it to 15. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, back to fastballs. Um, the seams are extremely important on, a fa- on, on the baseball itself, which is why there's a lot of controversy this year when it comes to the ball and offense and the seams being not as easy to grip. Uh, basically, when a pitcher throws the ball, He's holding it in a certain way, and when he throws it, the ball drags through the air because of the seams. Uh, the airflow around the baseball after it's been thrown, you know, creates little whirls of air around it and points of pressure or whatever, and that's known as the Magnus effect. So depending on where these points are on the baseball as it's in motion, it'll deviate from its trajectory. So 
a four-seam fastball, the spin on it creates backspin, which results in slight upward force um, from beneath the ball, causing it to resist gravity more. So it goes further, faster. Um, depending on where the pitcher grips the seams and how he throws the ball, you get variance on the four-seam fastball. Um, when you hold it by the horseshoe on the seams, it's a two-seam fastball. And the spin of that pitch is a little bit off-center, so it moves down as gravity acts on it because there's less backspin, and to the pitcher's arm side. Sinkers, they're like the brothers of the two-seam fastball. They're just a little heavier and have more downward movement. Cutters, they're held with the four-seam grip, just slightly off-center, and that results in late, sudden glove-side hop, a couple of inches or so. Splitters, they're held with the pointer finger, and the middle finger split around the horseshoes like a Y. And when they're thrown, backspin is reduced, so gravity acts on it, and it drops the last second. One thing that you hear um, baseball people talk about is a rising fastball, where the ball kind of defies gravity and rises, but that's actually an optical illusion. This is a really interesting thing that I was I was researching. It's actually an optical illusion caused by the backspin of the ball and the limits of our own brain. Basically, the neurons don't fire fast enough to process all this information quickly enough. Um, from the moment a pitch is thrown until the moment it releases, uh, until it gets to the plate, your basic, you know, low to mid-90s fastball, it it gets there in about 425 to 450 milliseconds. And that leaves the batter with that much time to basically identify it figure out where the pitch is going, decide whether or not they want to swing at it, and then actually move and, and swing at it. The process of swinging takes about 150 milliseconds. So a batter has about 275 to 300 milliseconds to do everything before that, identify the pitch, and then decide whether or not they want to swing on it. And the human brain just doesn't actually have enough time to process all this information in that little time. So it kind of substitutes a combination of Memory and assumption. So in other words, like stored in your memory is the concept that a ball thrown at speed should approach at a certain trajectory. Now, a fastball has that backspin on it, and that causes it to resist gravity more. So when batters are seeing a rising fastball, it's not actually rising, but the backspin on the pitch is causing it to resist gravity more, making it look like it's not rising excuse me, making it look like it's rising because it's not actually dropping as fast as the brain thinks it should, if that makes sense from a spoken uh, perspective. You guys follow with that? Yeah. And I think that's, like, such a cool thing because, you know, you don't have that in hockey. You don't have that in basketball. I guess you could have that in tennis because I know when when players serve the tennis ball, it's it's coming in, like, in excess of 100 miles an hour. But, like, no sport, no other sport do you have these, like, actual conundrums of just the human, the human body, you know, can't yeah. process information. You're, you're literally at the limit of what human, like, perception can do. You know? Yeah. That's an insane thing when you think about it. That something so innocuous is just like a pitcher throwing the ball really fast is demonstrating the limits of human ability. <laughs> when there's a reason hitting a hitting a baseball is the hardest thing in any major sport. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, uh, 
in the last decade or so, the average fastball speed has risen about a mile an hour. So in like 2008, it was averaged about 92.2. And last year, 2018, it averaged 93.2. And you go back another 10 years or so to the beginning of 2000s, and the average fastball speed was about 88.5. So, you know, new training regimens and obviously better conditioning and strengthening and everything has has gotten the uh has made the fastball faster but eventually we are going to get to the point where the human body just can't physically throw any harder again we're reaching the limits of of human ability uh according to glenn, glenn fleisig who is a doctor and studies biomechanics at the american sports medicine institute in birmingham uh, the human body really can't sustain much past 100 miles an hour. No, yeah. Um, you know, better conditioning and everything has got us to that point. But his research, his research has demonstrated that the closer a pitcher gets to 100 miles an hour, and then obviously a couple of guys that can get past there, um, the less of an impact, you know, a further tweaks and adjustments to the mechanics and everything are going to have to velocity. And then in addition, um, the harder a pitch is thrown – you know, the, the more arm speed a guy is is utilizing, more force is exerted on the UCL. And according to Fleisig, the action of throwing a major league average fastball, so your basic low to mid-90s fastball, it exerts 100 newton meters of torque on the arm, which is about the equivalent of 60 pounds. So throwing 100 plus obviously exerts even more force on the UCL. And in tests that he's done on cadavers, basically... It, the ligament literally can't withstand that much more yep. newtons, n- newton meters. It's like frightening, like to to the idea that for a normal human being, if you could just like magically gift the average person the ability to throw one pitch 100 miles an hour, there's a decent chance they finish that pitch with a f- destroyed elbow, mm-hmm. yep. which is kind of insane. It's scary when you think about what they're able to do. When, well, a guy like Aroldis Chapman, I would I would characterize his his hundred plus mile power fastballs as pretty easy. You know, his his delivery is kind of wacky, but once he actually throws, it, it comes out of out of his hands and everything pretty smooth. It's a lot easier than like he's Edwin Diaz. Right. Yeah. And he's just and he's just popping off hundred and three, hundred and four, hundred and six mile power fastballs like nothing. <laughs> Chapman's interesting though because he's like um the mechanical way to like, generate a lot of velocity is by maximizing your hip shoulder separation. Mm-hmm. So like when your foot clamps, the goal is to have your shoulder hip uh, as as wide an angle as possible. That way, when your body steps through, you, know, you generate power and speed through your core. Um is like ridiculously flexible yes like ridiculously flexible um in like area so let's see find a a picture of it yeah the problem with a lot of yeah sorry the problem with a lot of guys when they throw is when we say they're throwing at their arm is that they're generating their arm speed they're they're generating their speed by just kind of their arm speed and nothing really else think of a guy like marcos molina who's kind of had a wacky delivery that didn't really utilize his his 
bottom half at all, and it was just all arm. God, and his delivery was so painful. His was, like, extreme even by bad delivery standards of just being painful to watch. Yep, and then sure enough, he hurt himself. It's like landing, landing on a front foot, sacrificing all the momentum he has, and then slinging it. Yep, not good. Yeah, slinging is kind of the way to describe it, you know? Like, no body movement at all. Just, like, his arm, shoulder, and elbow. It's like that out of the draft. I mean, the flexibility aspect is a huge, huge part of... Like, basically, that's everything, Ken. Like, I think you hit on the point. Yeah. Let's these guys do anything. Almost every professional athlete is just gifted with more flexible collagen than the average person, which gives them the ability to do these ridiculous things. It also makes them more prone to various injuries, which is why professional athletes get hurt so often. But, yeah, it's it's nuts. Like it's just like it's beyond the point of being possible, even with any level of training imaginable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like um, like flexibility is kind of like the conduit that allows power to flow. You know, it's the same thing with with him. It's, it's all from the core, and the flexible you are, the more brute strength you channel into your swing. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, the analogy analogy, I think. I think if you asked plenty of people who, like, the most dominant athlete of the last, I don't know, decade is, they'd go to LeBron James, right? And you watch LeBron James do everything he does, but realistically, you could train yourself to probably tackle individual aspects. Like, you could train yourself to dunk. You could train yourself to run really fast. Now, you'd never be able to train yourself to be 6'8 and do all these things at the same time, which is why he's LeBron. But the, but you could train yourself to be just as fast or jump high feasibly. You cannot train yourself to throw a hundred mile an hour fastball. No, either you have the ability or you don't. That's it. Right. You'll break before. If you don't have the ability, you'll, you'll break before you get there. <laughs> Which is amazing that the UCL can withstand even that much force, given that it's not particularly big. Uh, it's it's nuts what these guys get away with. Yeah, I mean, if you figure, if if each throw has is is Forcing on the UCL, that's 60 pounds of force. You know, that's how many, I don't know, what's, what's the current average major league pitch? About, you know, 110, maybe a little less now. Yeah, it's probably in the 90s. Mm. You're on the Mets, it's above 100 because you have no right. bullpen, but. Yeah, the league leaders are like one. I mean, imagine 60 pounds every single pitch on that one little thing on the elbow. It just. Pretty crazy. And just this is all just another reason why baseball is the best sport. Because again, what other sport are you able to have this kind of biomechanical, in-depth analysis? You know, there there is obviously you know in basketball you have like your shooting arcs or whatever and things like that that are most opti- optimal. And I guess you have that in soccer and. Hockey, I guess. I don't know. You know, don't I mean, really understa- other sports too much. Understanding right? how soccer balls move or basketball moves is relatively easy. The physics of how baseball moves is a lot more complicated. Okay. Simply I mean, it really, to do this, yeah. It, it took until relatively recently where you have guys with radars and high speed cameras and slow motion and everything like that to, to truly understand most of this stuff. 
the TLDR is that no, none of us will ever be throwing 90 mile an hour fastballs, let alone 100 mile an hour fastballs. No. Whenever I, I see, I probably couldn't throw 70. Yeah, whenever I see those things at like parks or or at the ballpark, you know, little pitching thing where you throw the pitch and records, I I never, I'm always afraid because I don't want to like get left out of the place by throwing like 30 <laughs> miles an hour or something. I was able, to, I was able to get in like mid 70s with a crow step or a hop step in in high school, and my shoulder hurt for like a week afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not optimal to do that. Again. No, really not. All right, well, now that we have all this background information about really fast fastballs, let's talk about all of the guys in the Mets system that throw, you know, in the upper 90s and touch 100. It's going to be a really, really short list. Yeah. Because I've bad news is not a single person. Nobody sniffs the upper 90s, let alone 100 plus. Jose Moreno who I saw last year and he was throwing in the upper 90s, is not doing so this year when I saw him in Columbia. He's only hitting the low to mid 90s. I'm guessing it might be an intentional thing since his command isn't really that great and he gives up a lot of walks. So maybe, you know, they're intentionally not having him throw all out to kind of help the command. But for what it's worth, it's not even helping the command because he still is giving up too many walks and is still not having the best command. So I don't know. We can cars him off the list. All right. Um, Bryce Montes de Oca, who we drafted last season, he could touch the high 90s and could touch 100 miles an hour when he's with Mizzou, but he is MIA. Uh, he didn't throw a single pitch last year because he was hurt, and he hasn't thrown one this year, and he probably isn't. So I guess we can cross him off the list. Was he, is he, was he TJ'd or did something else happen? No, something else. Great. Probably multiple something else. Shoulders are complicated. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, Franklin Killame, he had a fastball that was in the low to mid-90s, could top out like 97 or so, but he's on the shelf with Tommy John. And then when he does come back, who knows exactly if the velocity will be there with him. Um, you know, as as we see Thomas Zipucky right before our eyes, it's a slow process. And then with Marcos Molina, it never really came back at all. So it's literally, you know, 50-50 chance that Kilomay's fastball returns and is basically what it was. Mm-hmm. So we can cross him off the list. Uh, Simon Woods-Richardson, as we've discussed in the podcast before, the claims that he could reach the upper 90s were kind of spurious going as far back as draft day. And there was some confusion about his velocity since then. But when I saw him, he was firmly in the low to mid-90s. Where's that so, Maury meme? The, the the radar gun determined that was a lie. <laughs> yeah. The thing about him, though, is his festival does have a lot of spin on it, mm-hmm. which comes into effect with that, you know, the concept of the rising fastball that we talked about before, and that's true with batters. So you don't always have to have a kind of blazing fast fastball to be able to fool guys. I think Ty Blashler is another guy that had a very uh, a fastball at a high RPM rate. Yeah, he's and, the spin rate guy. That's why he was able to strike out guys a crazy uh, amounts when he was in, in the minors coming up. A couple of other relievers in the system, Riley Gilliam, Ryder Ryan, Adonis Uceta, they could occasionally touch like 96 when they went all out. But those are guys that are generally in the low to mid-90s, I guess also because it just kind of helps with their commands and they're able to just better pace themselves. 
Um, one guy, I guess our one hope right now is Junior Santos down in Kingsport. Uh, supposedly he can sit in the, in the mid nineties and touch the high nineties, but I haven't seen him, so I can't confirm, but I'll be in Kingsport about next month and I'll probably see him. So hopefully he has his A game and he is, you know, touching the upper nineties. Cause if not him, then there's no one else. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think Wolf, Wolf wasn't a guy who was going to touch a hundred, right? He was more no. mid to high. Allen, I don't think is is that nope. high either. Yeah, nope. Fangraphs has Allen at a uh, 93, 96, top yeah. 97 or so, which is yeah. like I'm looking at the list right here, and there's not a single like 70 fastball in the system. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nope. Now that said, I still really am excited about Allen, but like he's not. Filling in this, more this. more of a yeah more of a pitchability dude yeah you know? I mean good stuff not you know necessarily relying on throwing extremely hard all the time mm-hmm. at the end of the day like you know the, the triple digits and the what the hell is it the Cholula hot sauce uh, oh uh, high speed of the SM. game right that spectrum stuff gets... internet high speed of the game. <laughs> Oh, it's not Cholula hot sauce. I thought, I've heard both. I might be wrong. It was it was Cholula for a long time. I don't know what it is now. I think it's Spectrum now, which is just awful because fuck Spectrum. Whoa! I think we're gonna get an R rating now. Oh, good, good. <laughs> um, I would well, like I'm to say to the folks at Spectrum, <laughs> you suck. Lucas is <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at the end of the day, speed gets that reaction, the wow. It has the wow factor. But at the end of the day, I think really movement or spin is the more important thing than just the actual velocity. I think it was Willie Stargell that has a quote that effectively it's like you could see off of a jet plane if you're given enough tries to time it. And that is, you know, if, if you talk to... Major League Baseball players, that's always the thing, is that if a pitch is straight, they could hit it. They might not always hit it, obviously, but... I mean, there's a reason There's a reason Jerson Bustista isn't good and was right. the whatever fourth piece in that deal this summer. Right. There's a guy on YouTube, I don't remember, I just kind of thought of it as we were talking, but so I don't know the uh, account off the top of my head. But basically, it's this kind of... Fat, very unathletic guy that is able to hit off of a pitching machine at like 150 or 200 miles an hour. And it's just because it's a pitching machine that's just shooting an extremely fast but very straight pitch at him. And he's has enough reps and he's able to time it that he can hit off of, you know, that speed. If it had any kind of like movement on it, you know that he would not be able to. Now I feel bad for never being able to hit above seventy in the batting cages. <laughs> so yeah, um, fastballs are pretty interesting, pretty cool physics stuff. I I have to wonder too if 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 this is, has been an intentional decision because it really feels like the Mets have not adjusted to. Modern baseball's usage of fastballs. Um, like Noah Syndergaard might be the best instance of it. Like 
not only do they not have anyone who throws super fast, I don't feel like they have anyone aside from Jacob DeGrom who knows how to blow a fastball by someone upstairs. Syndergaard is, like, always two years behind, like, what's in vogue in baseball, specifically. Right. Um, like, I've seen, basically, when he comes in saying, you know, whatever last year's big thing, big, like, sea change in how people are using fastballs was, that's what he was, like, the sinker in 2016. Um, this past year, he said he was using the, the upper part of the zone for seamer a lot more. So he's, like, a behind. I think that's all. I think that was also an island thing, uh, like an older school pitching philosophy. Yeah, but I just feel like the Mets haven't haven't recognized that that baseball has moved past these throw sinkers in the bottom part of the zone, keep the ball on the ground, because now guys will just stomp and draw, stomp and lit, whatever that phrase is, and and take those fastballs down in the zone out because they can reach out in front of the plate and, and uppercut on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe maybe this is a, a function of the Mets not acquiring good talent or an intentionally an intentional decision that is just outdated, or both. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if I'm taking an educated guess here, um, it's probably more of the first mm-hmm. and not much of the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> I mean, they just haven't done a good job with pitchers in a long time. It to feels be fair, like. Syndergaard's kind of a weird one. Um, he threw a very hard four-seamer, but it doesn't really spot. So it's, uh, I guess, straighter than your average. Like, really four-seamer. Um, so those struggles are more like, just because he's kind of in between, isn't really a great option. Mm. I don't know. Cinder right. guard should be better than what he is with, yes, the, stuff, with the stuff he has, which is which is why I have this theory about the Mets and fastballs, like because they clearly haven't figured out how to maximize some of their talent at the major league level. Maybe this is a philosophy that extends to further down, but who's to say? I, I think the answer with Syndergaard is probably throw a lot more sliders if he has a good one, uh, but you know, it's a story for another episode. Mm-hmm. All right, well, on that note, we will take a break, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back, everybody, to Complex the Queens, and we are now going to talk about that guy, where we take a look back, and we say, oh, yeah, and remember some of the Mets minor leaguers from years past that we might have forgotten about. So, who would like to go first? All right, uh, I'll go first, then. Um. On this week in 2012, so July 14th to July 20th, Greg Prawn had a, himself a good week. Do you guys remember Greg Prawn? Greg Prawn? Greg Prawn. Like Prawn. <laughs> so you have a cousin like uh, uh, Steve Crawfish or something? Like <laughs> oh, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't remember Greg Prawn. All right. Well, Greg Prawn on this week in uh, 2012, he hit 520, 520, 720 with three doubles and a triple. Not a bad week for him. All right. Since no one knows about him, he was uh, born in Daphne, Alabama, 
and he went to and attended Daphne High School. And then he went on to the University of West Florida in Pensacola. And he had a pretty good career there. Uh, he played for the Argonauts for four seasons. And he hit a combined 359, 439, 510 in 222 games. Um, his best season coincided with the University of West Florida's best season, 2011. And that year, Pran hit three, uh, 423, 486, 677 with 10 homers and 28 stolen bases. And the Argonauts went 51 and 9, and they won the NCAA double, uh, Division II, uh, national championship. So that year he set a single season record with 93 hits and 69 RBI. And then he set a cumulative school record with 291 hits, 77 stolen bases, and 34 hit by pitches. And he was in their top five in batting average doubles and homers. And then the Mets drafted him as a senior in the 42nd round of the draft, back when there were still 50 rounds. And they assigned him to Kingsport, and he did pretty well in his 58 games there, um, with the caveat, though, that he was a 22-year-old in a league where the average is like 20. But he hit 318, 389, 493, with seven home runs and six steals. And he was named the Kingsport Player of the Year. And then the Mets assigned him to the Savannah Sad Nats in 2012. And he just wasn't really able to keep the momentum going. Uh, he played in 112 games that year. And he hit 240, 293, 338 with two homers and 16 steals. And his 2013 was even worse. Um, he was limited to just 56 games because of shin contusions on both shins just at different times. And in total, he hit 188, 298, 256. And that October, he was given his release. And that was the end of his baseball career. Um, he was an athletic guy. He had a lot of physical tools. And against uh, Division II competition and guys in the low minors younger than him, those, to- those tools shone. And he looked like, you know, a five-tool guy. But against tougher competition in low A, the bat got exploited. He had a kind of big swing, and pitchers took advantage of that. He went from basically having a strikeout rate around 10% in college to having a strikeout rate around 25% as a professional. So like we were saying with Travis Tyrone earlier, when the hit tool struggles, it has an impact on power. Since when you hit for power, you know, if, you, if you're not making contact, that's the end of it. And that was basically Greg Pron's, uh the, the fault that that was the end of him. Um, he was inducted into the University of West Florida Hall of Fame, though, in 2017. But other than that, he's basically, you know, closed the baseball chapter of his life. And he's actually working at Mindtree right now as a software engineer uh, for Southwest Airlines. So he is moved on. Huh. Yep. It's an unexpected career path there. Yeah, it's always interesting when you see guys, you know, when you always think of baseball players as big dumb jocks. And clearly it's, you know, not the case. Good for that guy. Good for you, Bron. Mm-hmm. I'll spare everyone from another crustacean joke. <laughs> Who, you want to go first, Ken, or should I? Uh, sure, I'll go first. Um so for my oh yeah, that guy, I chose Jace Boyd, a 
first baseman and left fielder who from July 20th, 2016 to July 23rd, 2016 hit 538, 625, 1.077. That's a 356 WRC plus in 16 plate appearances. In that week, he hit four doubles and a homer and walked three times against just two strikeouts. So a pretty great week, regardless of what your yardstick of a good week is. Uh, so Boyd was born in Cantonment, Florida, and went to Tate High School, also in Cantonment, Florida. He was selected by the Rangers in the ninth round of the 2009 draft and uh, decided, instead of going pro, to honor his commitment to Florida State and um, prove to be like a pretty good decision for him. Really, all he did in the ACC was hit. He hit 326, 394, 507 as a freshman, 335, 415, 515 as a sophomore, and 376, 452, 506 as a junior. And um, that was enough to get the Mets to draft Boyd in the sixth round of the 2012 draft with the 200th overall selection. And uh, Boyd decided to sign with the Oregon Go Pro. Uh, so the profile for Boyd out of the draft was that he was a good hitter, um, would play very good first base defense, and possibly could play like a like an okay left field. But the real question with him was whether the power was going to show up in games or not. Um, you know, he never really he never hit more than ten home runs in a collegiate season. Um, never slugged above five twenty or so. So that that was the big question: Will his you know relatively impressive raw power get into games? And uh, it didn't right away. He went to Brooklyn as a 21-year-old, which is uh, about right at the league average for the New York Penn League, and um, really didn't perform the way that you would want your sort of polished um, major conference performer that you just drafted to, to perform at that level of competition. He hit 239, 320, 368 um, in uh, 228 plate appearances for Brooklyn, and... Uh, really didn't break out until the 2013 season, which he split between Savannah and, and uh, the Florida State League, and the St. Louis Nets. <clears throat> so he hit 330, 410, 461, and 529 plate appearances between the two levels, and was a South Atlantic League All-Star before being promoted to St. Lucie in late June, and hit 292, 372, 421 after the promotion. In 2014, Boyd spent the entire season in Binghamton and hit 293, 382, 414, which is about 26% above league average for the Eastern League, and was really a linchpin in the 2014 Eastern League champion uh, Binghamton Mets lineup. And Boyd's major claim to fame in the Binghamton area is that he actually hit the walk-off two-run double to clinch Binghamton's uh, 2014 Eastern League championship title over the uh, Richmond Flying Squirrels. So he'll always kind of be a legend in Binghamton. Boyd kind of spent 2015 between Binghamton and Vegas uh, and came out of the gate strong, basically replicating his line from the previous season in Binghamton, hitting 304, 360, 422, but really struggled after being promoted to Vegas in late May. He didn't really fare well in the desert, hitting 254, 313, 333, and um, injuries really started to become a problem for him as he was limited to just 98 games and... Um, 326 plate appearances. 2016 was kind of um, a lost year for Boyd as well. He spent the whole year in Binghamton again and 
really, really struggled both performance-wise and with injuries, you know, probably related. Uh, hitting 259, uh, 259, 336, 341 in 304 plate appearances, uh, and was limited to just 77 games due to injury. Um, so really not a good year in a year that he, at, at a level that he had, you know, been very good at the previous two seasons. Uh, he returned to Vegas for the 2017 season, hitting 297, 371, 512. So actually a pretty good year in, in Vegas, albeit in Vegas. Um, but the Mets decided to release him prior to, um, the minor league, the start of the minor league season in 2018. So about a couple of days before uh, minor league camp broke and uh, the different affiliates began their season. And uh, he eventually caught on with the St. Saint Paul Saints of the American Association, uh, an independent league, and um, hit 270, 345, 340 uh, across 25 games, which doesn't sound great, but was enough to pique the interest of um, my local independent league affiliate or independent league team, the Somerset Patriots of the Atlantic League, who um, signed him in August of 2018. And it proved to be a really wise decision for the Patriots. He hit 316, 389, 481 in 150 PAs across uh, 35 games down the stretch for the Patriots. It really helped them on their push to the playoffs. Uh, he had a big game in Game 3 of the Liberty Division Championship Series, which is kind of their... Um, NLCS or ALCS, you know, the semifinal, uh, but did go three for five in game three and uh, really powered them to the game three victory before the Patriots ended up losing in game five, uh, ending their season. So Boyd hasn't played anywhere uh, so far in 2019, uh, but we wish him well in the future if, you know, either in the game or outside of it. We wish you well, Chase. So that's my, oh yeah, that guy. I remember, I want to say 2013 like or 2014, something to that effect, when we were making our top prospect list, I included Boyd as like 21 or 22 or something to that effect. Yeah, my rationale is like, well, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of power, but he hits for you know pretty good major, a pretty good average. I mean, Matt Loney is a major league first baseman, so why can't Boyd? And, like, I look back at that now and I just kind of, like, facepalm myself because, yeah, not a good take. There were, there were some real Jace Boyd stands uh, around. He's uh, always been a dude of mine. I've always liked him. Um, just sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out or injuries happen or you just don't have you know. mm. Yeah, I mean the thoracic outlet is just brutal. Like it's it's yeah. so tough to come back from. Anyway, uh, on on the topic of guys who were totally derailed by injuries, um, my oh yeah that guy this week was Sean Ratliff. Uh, yeah, that'll do it to him. I don't know. So we'll get to the injury in a moment. Uh, first, uh, during this week in two thousand. Uh, 10, he was with, uh, at the time, it was still Binghamton, but they were still the Mets, right? Um, mm-hmm. he hit, okay, Fangraphs is gonna do this to me now, cool. Thank, thanks Fangraphs, <laughs> I, I appreciate it Fangraphs, there we go. Um, he, he hit, hit a, good. He hit good. He hit ball far many times, yes. 
<laughs> why use many word when few word do trick? Uh, he hit 395, 449, 628. That's a 177, 1077 OPS and a 199, 191 weighted. Um, mixed in a home run in that stretch. Uh, so Ratliff was a, a fourth round pick in 2008 out of Stanford. He was on their, their team that, uh, uh, was in the College World Series the years before. They lost to, uh, double, double elimination bracket. Both their losses were through the, to, uh, Georgia who eventually finished second in the tournament. He was a power-hitting center fielder, um, but had something of a, a – I mean, which is unusual for a Stanford guy given the, the stigma around Stanford hitters. Um, so he came in came into the system in 2008, wasn't great in uh, low A, uh, had a, a mediocre 2009 and then kind of broke out in 2010, uh, was really good in, in advanced day and then – even better when they promoted him to, to double A. Uh, that was in 2010. Then at the start of the 2011 season when he was starting to get some, some prospect hype. So he was on minor league balls list of, of interesting guys. There are a couple other places that noted, uh, him as a guy to watch. Uh, he got hit in the face with a fastball that broke six bones around his eye. Um, missed all of 2011 and, uh, called it quits pretty early on in 2012. Probably just uh, a little traumatized, justifiably traumatized by, mm-hmm. you know, taking a fastball to the face. Um, I mean, when you're when you break six bones around your eye, you're usually pretty close to losing your eye itself. So I can imagine it's difficult to get back in the box after that. Um, and I don't know, don't know what he's up to now. He's 32, um, still reasonably young, not by baseball player standards, but by life standards, and. uh Hopefully he's uh, doing. Uh, hopefully everything's going well, and he's not suffering from that injury still. Well, he was last year the manager of Kingsport, but right, 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 they right. Did not bring him back. I'm not really sure I what totally the reasoning. Yeah, not really sure what the reasoning for not bringing him back was after one season managing. Um, my one Sean Ratliff story though is that <clears throat> when I was at Kingsport last year. Um, I had tickets to two games, but I only got to one because I was stupid and only got the Airbnb for one night. And mm-hmm. having driven there, I said to myself, oh, God, I can't drive back in the in the dark. I mean, mountain roads, you know, that kind of very, very stereotypical kind of thing. But after the first game ended, um, I was leaving, going back to the Airbnb, um, Jared Kellenick was on first base. I forget who made the first out, but, and I guess it doesn't really matter now because he is in Seattle, so whatever, but he got into such an argument with Sean Ratliff over what I'm not really sure, but like Ratliff is getting red in the face and Kellenick was like very animated. Um, they went into the dugout and that was the end of it and I couldn't really hear what was going on, but you know, Jared Kalenic is kind of a dick. So, jeez, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> now, do, do, was this like a major story? Did I just totally miss this last year, or, or like? No, it I was Steve mentioning it in Slack, but you know, I, I have no memory of this. It was not a story whatsoever. It's like I've mentioned it in in our minor league channel, but just one of those things where you hear about how. So and so player is a gamer, you know, is intense, 
plays the game with an attitude, whatever euphemisms you want to use. And um, in in his case, that was definitely something that I made note of when I was writing up his draft profile because that was something that a lot of other uh, sources highlighted that he was an intense gamer. And a lot of times, you know, being an intense gamer is being a euphemism for kind of being a bully or a dick or whatever you'd like to call it. Not always, but in some cases. Yeah, what's that? What's that phrase? Mark Craig loves. Uh, am I allowed to say that? What, I don't red know. ass. Yes, the red, the red ass. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Paul Duca. I was Captain Red Ass back in two thousand and six. Uh, better times. Yeah, I, it would be nice if we were winning. It'd be nice if this game would end. See, love sitting. <laughs> Oh, but Familia's on the mound. Okay, this is going to be over in short order. (laughs) That's another interesting thing. From going back and researching, oh, yeah, that guy, looking at, like, some old box scores or old form reports that we did. I remember one. I was looking at one from, like, 2012 or whatever, and I didn't, you know, I I didn't know who I was going to be looking at yet. I just kind of click on on the scores and just kind of browse through it. I'll see if a guy had a good game or not and then look for the rest of his week. But when I opened up the farm report from early 2000s, I saw this this familiar face from, like, St. Lucie Mets. I was just like, that's Jerry's familiar, isn't it? And sure enough, it was baby familiar. <laughs> was he still starting at that point? Yes, he was. So it's fun to see, you know, the... You know, not not just, for, you know, guys that we've forgotten about, but guys, you know, seeing where they came from and everything, too. Back when Familia was the starter, and there was no uh, inkling whatsoever to have him become a reliever. Huh. Well, do you guys have any last words for the week? Uh, please, uh, let's get some of those Dominican center fielders healthy. Like, bring bring me Adrian Hernandez and Stanley Consegra back, please. Yeah, that'd be cool. The, uh, Boons, yeah. All right, well, if anyone has any questions, comments, concerns, whatever, send us an email at from com- at our email address, from complexthequeens at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and shoot questions at us there. I am at Steve Saipa. Lucas is at lvlahos343. And Ken is at kenlevin91. Subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Rate, review them. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, love the Mets, love the Mets.